Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Deadline's new Hollywood live podcast panel and cocktails at TIFF 2019 is sponsored by the lovely people at Fig and Olive and Ink Box. Fig and Olive. Go eat there. Delicious foods. I don't, I don't care what you say. Just go. You know what? Go to Inkbox. Get a temporary tattoo. You know, order from them online, whatever. Get a temporary tattoo that looks real, that feels real, that lasts a long time. And then go have some dinner at Fig and Olive. Delicious. You know, you have something stylish on your arm, like an anchor or something. I don't know. And then you go eat some delicious flatbreads, hors d'oeuvres, whatever, at Fig and Olive. Delicious foods. For your tummies. I can't believe I said tummies. Anyways, I also want to give a special thanks to our partners, Love Child Social House, who housed, who housed, who played host to our live podcast. Thank you guys so much for, how, uh, for letting us take your stage and your space for our Hustlers panel, for obituary of Tunde Johnson, and Just Mercy, three great films here at TIFF, coming to you soon to the public. Um, also want to thank Callie Love for giving us love, for serving us lovely vegan food and non-vegan food. They just have really great food at Cali Love and great smoothies. But if you go that vegan route, they, they'll, they'll take care of you. But if you're not vegan and you want to eat something non-vegan, they have, you know, awesome poke bowls. Oh, I, I just love me a good poke bowl and you should too. Anyways, want to thank them. Uh, and also I want to give a shout out to our other partners, Bullet Bourbon, Kettle One Botanical, and Tanqueray Number 10 for serving us great drinks during our live podcast panels and keeping our guests happy and, you know, their thirst quench. So uh, let's move on with the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Deadline's New Hollywood Podcast. My name is Dina Ray Ramos. I am one of two co-hosts of this lovely podcast. My other co-host uh, and colleague, Amanda Nduka, is out in Toronto having a grand old time eating poutine while I'm here recording. But I'll join her after. Don't worry. I'll have fun here as well. You know, but we also have to work. Speaking of work, you know, we've been doing these live podcasts Uh, these great live podcasts. We've had the cast and crew, for, uh, cast and uh, filmmakers from Hustlers. We've had the cast and filmmakers from the obituary of Tunde Johnson. And now we're bookending this live series of podcasts with the lovely Warner Brothers film, Just Mercy. 
and it is such an impactful film. Great messaging, great, you know, not messaging. That makes it sound, you know, that kind of, I don't, I don't want to say it's like a message film, but it's just a very human film about think that something that is really affecting our society today. Um, it's about a lawyer named Brian Stevenson, real life man. He's a lawyer, activist. He's more than just a lawyer. He's an activist. He's changing the world. He's an advocate. If you've heard him speak, he is wonderful. It's based on his book about one of his early, I think, I don't know, maybe it's his first case. I'm not sure, but it's one of his cases that he took on when he was a young lawyer. And he took on this case of Walter McMillan, who was sentenced, who, who, get, who got the death sentence for allegedly murdering an 18-year-old girl. Um, and the evidence was not there. This was in the Deep South. So he just got put in prison. And we don't want to say that it was just based on the color of his skin, but you know what? All point, signs point to that. Let's just face it. It is. Um, it's a wonderful film, guys. This comes out later this year in limited release in December and then goes wide throughout the holiday season and into, into the new year. And it is, I, I bawled my eyes out. I'll tell you that much. Um, Michael B. Jordan stars as Brian. Um, we have Jamie Foxx starring as Walter. Um, also, Brie Larson stars in it. This is directed by Dustin Daniel Cretton, wonderful filmmaker. He directed Short Term 12. I can't stress people to watch that enough. He's a wonderful filmmaker with great vision. Um, that one also stars, actually, you know, um, Brie Larson. But anyways, um, we have on this live panel, we have Brian Stevenson. We have Destin Jalen Crenton talking about this film, what it means, why it's important um, as it makes its uh, premiere here at TIFF. And it's a great conversation, great movie. And I can't wait for you guys to listen to this conversation. I can't wait for you to watch this movie. It's all great. So without further ado, here is Brian Stevenson, Dustin Daniel Creighton, live from the Toronto International Film Festival. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, this is a very timely, timely film um, and a story that we know all too well, um, unfortunately. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Brian. Can you just talk about when you were first approached to adapt your book into the feature? What were your initial, what were your initial thoughts? Well, I was worried because I don't think um, Hollywood and filmmakers have consistently been good at telling stories about people of color. I think we often compromise, we shift, we fit them into frameworks that don't actually present the humanity and the complexity of what it means to struggle against systems and structures that can be really unfair. So I had a lot of apprehension. But when I saw Destin's film, Short Term 12, I got really hopeful because he did something amazing in that film and that he brought complex topics and subjects and people together in a very human way. And that was my concern about having a book turned into a movie. And then when Michael B. Jordan signed on and uh, Jamie signed on and the folks at Warner Brothers talked to me, it was clear that they wanted to do something that was responsive to the, to, to the story I told in the book. And for me, that's what made it possible to move this forward. And, and you know, this wasn't an easy thing for me. I've spent most of my career in the courts. I've spent most of my career on, in jails and prisons with condemned people. 
with children prosecuted as adults in spaces where people are marginalized and excluded and oppressed. Uh, and I just became persuaded uh, a decade or so ago that I couldn't do the kinds of justice work I want to do if I stayed in the courts. That we're going to have to get outside the courts and create a different environment uh, for people to understand the issues that we're talking about. And narrative work, uh, writing books, uh, creating movies, telling stories is critical to that project. And so since that time, I've been a lot more open to doing this kind of work. Uh, I participated in a project with Ava DuVernay called 13th, where we mm. talked about the issues. Yes, yes. Uh, documentary. And uh, it's through projects like that that I'm hopeful that we can perhaps create a new relationship to these issues. And I was really proud uh, when uh, this film came together. And I'm super proud of the film and really grateful to all the people who helped make this happen. And um, um, Brian, just so we can have a little bit of a background, what, what was the impetus that led you to do the work that, that you do? So I'm a product of um, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, the US Supreme Court decision that ended racial segregation in schools. I grew up in a racially segregated, poor, uh, black community. Uh, there were no high schools for black kids when my dad was a teenager. He couldn't go to high school. Uh, my uh, parents were humiliated by segregation every day of their lives. They saw the signs that said white and colored. My grandparents fled the Deep South after lynching and racial terrorism forced them to be part of that mass migration where six million black people left the American South and went to the North and West. My great-grandparents were enslaved in Virginia. And so the legacy and the history of racial discrimination and bigotry was all around me. And when integration came, I had the opportunity to go uh, to the public schools. I got a high school degree. I got a college degree. I ended up in law school because I believed that there have to be ways to help disfavored people, even when majoritarianism won't succeed. If you took a vote about whether we should end racial segregation in my community when I was a little boy, we would have never won that vote. But with the right to an equal education, we could actually tear down these barriers. And I wanted to give that to the poor and the oppressed and the excluded and the incarcerated and the condemned who I knew were suffering. And so I started practicing law. Um, I didn't really understand it until I was in law school and uh, I took a job working with a human rights organization providing legal services to people on death row. And they sent me down to a prison and we depict this in the film where I was really nervous. I was a young law student. I didn't know what to expect. And they just told me to tell some guy that he wasn't at risk of execution any time in the next year. And when they got me into the prison area for the visitation and this man walked in, he had handcuffs on his wrist and a chain around his waist and shackles on his ankles. And I was so nervous, I almost forgot what they told me to tell him. And they took the chains off and I went up to him and I said, you know, I'm just a law student. I don't know anything about the death penalty, but you don't, uh, you're not at risk of, of execution any time in the next year. And he kept saying to me, say that again. And I would say, you're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. And then this man grabbed my hands and he said, thank you, thank you, thank you. He said, you're the first person I've met in my two years on death row who's not a death row prisoner or a death row guard. And we started talking. He told me that he, he, didn't let his wife, he hadn't let his wife or kids come to visit because he was afraid they'd show up with an execution date. And we started talking. And we fell into this conversation. We were exactly the same age. We had the same birthday, same month, same day, same year. And one hour turned into two hours, and two hours turned into three hours. And we just fell into this conversation. Even though I'd only scheduled to be there an hour, we just kept talking. 
And the guards got angry, and Dustin puts this in the film, got angry, and they came bursting in, and they were mad that we'd been in there for three hours, and they could hear us laughing and talking. And so they threw this man against the wall, they pulled his hands back, they put the chains back on his, on his wrists, they wrapped the chain around his waist, they put the shackles back on his feet, and they were treating him so roughly. And I kept begging them to be gentler, but they wouldn't pay me any attention, and they pushed him to the, to the door. But when he got near the door, I saw him plant his feet. And the next time they tried to push him, he didn't move. And that's when this man looked at me, he said, Brian, don't worry about this, you just come back. And before they tried to mush, push him again, uh, he closed his eyes, he threw his head back, and he started to sing. And he sang this hymn, he started singing, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. And then he said, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And everybody stopped. Uh, the guards recovered, they started pushing him down the hallway, and you could hear the chains clanging, but you could hear this man singing about higher ground. And when I heard that man sing, everything changed for me. That was the moment that I knew I wanted to help condemned people get to higher ground. But more than that, I knew that my journey to higher ground was tied to his journey. I realized that if he doesn't get there, I can't get there. And when I got back to Harvard Law School, you couldn't get me out of the law library because I needed to know the things necessary to help condemned people get to higher ground. And when people ask me why I do this work, I tell them it's because I got close enough to the condemned, to the oppressed, to the excluded, to hear their songs, to hear their stories. And if I've had any impact on anybody's life, if I've made a difference in, in, in the justice quotient in the community where I work, if we've helped anybody get out of jail or prison, it's because I got close to a condemned man who sang to me about higher ground. And for me, that's what this is about, getting people closer to the communities that have been ignored and invisible and discarded and not heard for too long. Well, okay. <laughs> Powerful. That, that was a word. Thank you for that. Um, Dustin, what drew you to this project? And did you use any of your own personal experiences or what did you draw from to, you know, with your directing of this, this film? Um, Brian Stevenson had an experience like the one he just told you, and he didn't keep that experience to himself. He decided to tell that story and put it in print and put it in a, a remarkable, life-changing book called Just Mercy. And when I read that story, I was so moved, uh, like I'm sure many of you are when you hear it, he, he's such an incredible storyteller, and he, I, I think that the heart of, of all of the stories that he tells is showing, showing a side to humans that, that are typically overlooked or left in the shadows, people who are easily judged, and, and he shows us a side to them that reflects the reality that they are not only like us, they are us. They are a part of us. And um, I, I felt that so deeply in every page of his book that brought me to tears, that made me laugh, that made me feel more connected to humanity um, in, in one reading than I've felt in a long time. And it was just a privilege and an honor to be a part of this. Um, did you, what were, did you have any challenges to convey the story? What were, what were some of the main challenges for you with, the, with, the, with making this film? 
I am not a lawyer. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I stepped into this really not knowing anything about that process. Um, we 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 did have this this uh, amazing book with so many details in it, but. Um, we, we also had Brian Stevenson by our side. Uh, Andrew Lanham, our, our co my co-writer, and I were just constantly in touch with Brian throughout this entire process to not only get the legal part of it right, but to get the characters and the themes and the philosophy behind everything correct. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a big challenge that we all kind of went through together. How, how do you sort of go about balancing telling this really true um, a personal story, but also keeping it within the frame of entertainment, right? Entertainment, I mean, I, I think right now, entertainment is potentially taking on a new form. I don't think people watch a documentary like 13th specific, it is extremely entertaining because you are learning and because you are seeing uh, a side to something that you haven't seen before. It's stimulating your brain and that is an entertaining uh, thing. And, and that's, I, I, I don't think we are necessarily creating this, this film to entertain, although it, it is, it is uh, I think, very, very stimulating and very, it, it, it grabs you and takes you on an emotional journey that not only shows you the, the harsh reality of things, but leaves you with what Brian consistently leaves me with, this, this, this hope that we can, that we can um, take, take this world to a better place together. Now, the performances in this film were amazing. Uh -huh. Jamie Foxx, Michael B. Jordan. Um, uh, Brian, what was your what was your initial reaction when you see sort of your story play out on screen? What was that moment like for you? Yeah, it was it was really gratifying, and um, I underestimated the power of uh, performers, even really talented performers, to bring the full humanity of the people that I've known to the big screen. But I was completely blown away uh, by the performances. Uh, Jamie Foxx in the first scene of the film is doing what my client Walter did all the time. He's just out in the woods working. And when I saw him, he looked so much like Walter McMillan that it stunned me. And uh, it's an amazing performance because Jamie understands the complexity of living in two worlds. And he's, uh, you know, Walter had to navigate how to stay safe in a world where the slightest misstep could get you in trouble. And he had gotten that down and still ended up wrongly convicted. And Jamie's performance really brought all of that to bear, and, and Michael's performance as well, was so genuine. I think he cared deeply. I was absolutely blown away with their performances. And for me, that's what this was about. I, I mean, you, you hear these numbers, right? So in the US, we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. We've gone from a prison population of 300,000 in 1972 to 2.2 million today. We've got 70 million people in the US with criminal arrest histories. Uh, one in three black male babies born in America is expected to go to jail or prison, and nobody talks about that. And I think it's because we haven't thought about what it means to live in a community where 50, 60, 70 percent of the young boys of color are in jails or prisons. What it feels like to have a child who you have to prepare to navigate encounters with the police with hopes that they will survive. What it feels like to carry the trauma and the burden of this history 
And, and part of the reason why we don't understand that is that we haven't given full humanity to the lives of people who are living with this. And that's what Jamie and Michael and Rob and O'Shea and all of the amazing performers do. And I was really excited to see it because I'm hoping that people will now have a little bit more insight into why we have to fight harder to eliminate mass incarceration and excessive punishment and wrongful convictions and unfair sentencing. You, you've made a good point in, your, in the film. Um, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna spoil it, but speak, speaking to people who are guilty of crimes, um, you kind of said, and I'm paraphrasing, that they also deserve to be treated as humans as, uh, as well. Um, can you sort of elaborate? Sure, I mean, I, we have a lot of people who are innocent uh, in our jails and prisons. Um, you know, for every nine people we've executed in America, we've now identified one innocent person on death row. It's a shocking rate of error, and yet we continue to execute people. And the thing that stuns me about that is that if for every nine planes it took off, one crash and everybody died, none of us would fly. We wouldn't accept an error rate like that, but we continue to accept it in the American death penalty. And so we wanted to highlight that, but we also have lots of people who have made mistakes, who have fallen down, and we still need to be just and fair to them. And that was partly, I mean, for me, that was really important. We've declared this misguided war on drugs in the states where we've put hundreds of thousands of people in jails and prisons because they are drug dependent and drug addicted. We said those people were criminals, when we could have said those people have a healthcare problem that we need to respond to in a healthcare way. Uh, we tell the story of a man named Herbert Richardson, who was a Vietnam vet, who went to Vietnam. Uh, he experienced something horrible while he was at Vietnam, where everybody in his platoon was killed. Uh, and he came back traumatized. And that trauma manifested itself in an act uh, where he unintentionally killed someone. And then he gets sentenced to death because he didn't have a good lawyer. And that's the other problem that we have. We have in too many places across the globe legal systems that treat you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. And uh, it was important to me, and, and Destin was so um, brilliant in the way he depicts us in the film, that we tell that story too, that we make this not just about people who are factually innocent, because even people who have made mistakes, I mean, the heart of the film is this belief that I have, that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I think if somebody tells a lie, they're not just a liar. I think if you take something, you're not just a thief. I think even if you kill somebody, you're not just a killer. And justice requires that we understand the other things you are before we judge you. And because of Rob's amazing performance, uh, when we get to that scene, we know he's more than somebody who killed. And when I was representing him, the painful part was going to death row uh, and being with this man before a scheduled execution, where, where when I got there, he said to me, he said, Brian, it's been such a strange day. He said. Uh, all day long, people have been, do, uh, been asking, what can I do to help you? He said, when I woke up this morning, they said, what do you want for breakfast? At midday, they said, what do you want for lunch? At dinner, they said, what do you want for dinner? He said, all day long, people have been saying, what can I do to help you? Can I get you food? Can I get you stamps? Can I get you access to the phone? And I, and I never will forget him saying to me, he said, Brian, it's been so strange. He said, more people have said, what can I do to help you in the last 14 hours of my life than they ever did in the first 19 years of my life. And holding that man's hands, uh, I was thinking, yeah, where were they when you were three and your mom died? Where were they when you were seven and you were being abused? Where were they when you were 10 and you were dealing with drug addiction? I know where they were when you came back from Vietnam. And to have that kind of reality crushing on you 
while they're about to pull somebody away um, was very challenging. And it was important for me that that be part of this film experience. And, and Dustin does a brilliant job of presenting it. And I'm energized that people are grieving the story of Herbert Richardson just like they're grieving the injustice of Walter McMillan. Yes. How many of you in the audience have seen it? Have Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, the, the you know, I was all up in my feelings during this film. I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 there were many moments where I was just like this the whole time. Like, it, it really struck a chord. You know, and right now with Just Mercy, there, and then we have, the, you mentioned the third, you know, 13th, yeah. we had When They See Us, Brian Brooks. All these films are coming out at this same time. Do you think this is a coincidence or, and, or is it just kind of a time that these narratives are need to be told? I mean, well, Destin may have a perspective, but to me, this is a testament to the power of diversity. Mm -hmm. When we open up spaces and we let women and people of color uh, be placed where their creative talents and visions and insights can be expressed, we're going to see a different kind of film. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a different kind of environment. It happened in music way before it happened in film. You know, it's not that in the 1950s or 60s there was some new commitment to black music. We just got enough space to actually have our songs be heard. And when people heard it, they responded. And it changed uh, music all around the world. Now that there are talented filmmakers and talented writers and talented creatives in uh, producing positions uh, in industries around the world, I think you're going to see more of these stories because this is the truth we want to tell. And I just hope that the barriers that have kept these stories from being mainstream are just crushed, you know, because when we have the access, when we have the opportunity to tell these stories, they can be powerful, they can be for everybody. I've gone to dozens of Holocaust films and weep because they've been so powerful. You don't have to be black or brown to connect with the struggle of people of color. You don't have to be gay. You don't have to be a woman. You don't have to be any of these groups to recognize humanity when it's crafted and presented brilliantly. So I hope it's a beginning of a new era. And in my work, that's what we're trying to do. We've built a museum, uh, the Legacy Museum. We built a memorial, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. I hope everybody, I invite everybody to come to Montgomery and see our spaces. And what we want to do at EJI is we want to create an era of truth and justice. Uh, of, of truth and reconciliation, of truth and restoration. And what I believe is that that's sequential. You've got to tell the truth before you get to justice. You've got to tell the truth before you get to redemption and reconciliation. And I hope that filmmakers and creatives will be leading that effort. And it's stories like the ones you're mentioning, like this one, and creatives like Destin and others, that I think are going to be at the forefront of that movement. And that's what I think this reflects. I hope mm -hmm. it's what it yeah. reflects. And Destin, as a, a filmmaker of color, and you know, you've You've done Short Term 12. If you guys have not seen that, please watch that. It's an awesome film. And you know, you're doing a bigger blockbuster with Shang-Chi coming up and with Just Mercy. How have you seen, you know, during your career, opportunities for filmmaker of col filmmakers of color um, evolve? Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful. We're at the beginning of, of, of a shift, I hope, um, where as, as more and more filmmakers, uh, di diverse filmmakers are 
getting into positions of power and being able to make decisions not only artistically in front of the camera, but choosing who is behind the camera as part of that crew, which is something that we did on this movie. Um, we, we were able to give opportunities to heads of departments who have been working in this industry for so, some over 20 years and have never been a head of department, even though they, and as, they were just never given that opportunity because probably because uh, they were a minority. Um, and as soon as they stepped into that role, they were so ready. And I had actors tell me that they were the best head of department they've ever worked with. And now, now that that's on their resume, they will be able to do that on the next one and hire whoever else they want who's, who's never had that opportunity. And I, I feel like the more, the more that happens, the, the stories will begin to shift, um, and, and I, hope, I hope the industry changes as a whole. And uh, just to wrap up, because I think they're giving us the signal, <laughs> uh, what, what do you guys hope that this film can bring to the conversation, the goal of justice reform? How, could, how, how do you feel like this film can contribute to that? <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know, we're trying to educate people, um, that there are things we can do. Uh, Brie Larson plays a woman named Eva Ansley. She's not a lawyer, but she's a critical part of this effort. And my hope is that people will be empowered and energized to not accept what we've accepted for too long. I, I mean, it's a challenging film. It's tough in places. But it's ultimately a hopeful film, and what we're hoping the film will do is get people to believe things they haven't seen. Right. We haven't seen a world without racial bias and bigotry. We haven't seen a world without oppression and injustice. We haven't seen a world where color and gender isn't a barrier in some places, but we have to create that world, and, and I'm hoping that people will take from this film a line that Michael says, uh, which is that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. We've got to believe things we haven't seen. I really do believe that hope is our superpower, and that some of us stand up even when people say sit down, as some of us speak even when people say be quiet, we will begin uh, to great break down some of these barriers. We've got to end mass incarceration. We've got to end the war on drugs. We've got to create a commitment to helping uh, people who are living in the margins. And we'll have some wonderful opportunities for people to connect. Uh, my organization, EJI.org, is building a platform. So when the film is released, People come to that platform. We've got a network of organizations around the world that will be looking for volunteers. We'll be creating opportunities for people to get involved in their community. We're going to be encouraging people to vote because there is a political architecture that sustains the fear and anger that creates these policies, and we've got to challenge that. And then ultimately, we're going to ask people to find ways to connect with those who are coming out of jails and prisons who need our help to recover from what we've allowed to happen to them. So. I mean, my hope is that we create a more just world, that we create more opportunities, that we end uh, the bigotry and bias that has condemned too many. Well, Brian, Dustin, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. It was a great conversation. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.